we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, he said when Paul left Galatia, after introducing them to the gospel that he received from Jesus, uh, the love of God opened people's hearts. Resentment and remorse decreased. Love and faith increased. The missionaries from Jerusalem came, and in the wake of their influence, the lights went out spiritually. Love immediately started to wane, and Paul knew why. He knew exactly what was going on. They had exchanged sonship for slavery. What he says, Galatians 3.24 to 4.7. Paul writes, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved in the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Before we understand what happened in Galatia, let's take a moment to become clear about slavery and sonship. The Bible divides humanity into two categories that are opposite. It talks about slaves of sin and sons of God. Let's talk about slaves of sin. Uh, Jesus talked about it in John 8, 31. Look what he says. So Jesus said, to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus was talking to individuals, Jews, who have believed in him. And because they believed in him, they were willing to learn from him, were willing to follow him. They bought that he had things to say, that he came from the Father. And, and so Jesus said to those who had believed in him, if you abide or remain in my word, make room for my word, if you do that, 
he said, you are truly my disciples. They had received him as a rabbi. So a, in those days, when you were a disciple of a rabbi, what you did, you sat at this person's feet and you learned. So when the Bible talks about individuals who received Jesus, he's speaking of those who received him as a rabbi who sat at his feet and learned from him. And what Jesus said, that if you do that, if you make room in your mind for his words, then that identifies you as a disciple. That's what a disciple does. It's a learner. And Jesus says, and you will know the truth by making room, and the truth will set you free. He promises them that their decision to believe, if accompanied by remaining in his teaching, would lead to freedom. And this, while perhaps clear, wasn't clear at the time, they said, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What it says, everyone who practices sin, everybody who does sin is a slave to sin. Um, we learn something important about sin. Sin is in the Bible an act at times, but not in this context. Here, sin is an enslaving power. And that's something that we learn about sin. Sin is not just an act. It's an enslaving power, something that masters, something that we end up being enslaved to. Jesus doesn't die to rescue us simply from sinful choices. He dies to rescue us from slavery to sin, being in bondage to it. He says the slave does not remain in the house forever. The sun remains forever, so if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. One of the significant differences between a slave and a son at the time is that if you were a slave, you didn't have a permanent place in the family. If you messed up, then you were, you could be dismissed. But if you were a son or daughter, the, even if you messed up, you weren't going to be dismissed. So the reason why Jesus comes is to allow us to have a permanent place in God's family. So we would find that our inclusion in God's family doesn't require us to dot I's, cross T's. Now, hopefully we will do that. But when we mess up, our place in God's family is not in jeopardy. That's what Jesus comes to do. A slave, their position is in jeopardy, but not a son or daughter. Um, the, Jesus came to emancipate slaves of sin so that they could become sons and daughters of God with a permanent place in the family. What the Galatians had done, they, were, they had heard Paul and said, gee, that's great. You mean I'm a permanent place in God's family? Wonderful. And in that joy and hope, Love started to blossom. The sense of the weight of walking with God ceased to be as burdensome as it had been. And because it was less burdensome, they, their love started to wax, started to grow. Um, what happened, though, is individuals came in, and before you know it, they're putting the load back on. And in putting the load back on, what happens to love? It starts to dissipate. They start to compare themselves to one another. It says they 
started to bite and consume one another. So rather than praying for one another, they started to prey on one another. Uh, Paul writes to show them the error of their thinking. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When he talks about a guardian, it talks about a jailer. Surprising the identity of this jailer. It's not what we usually imagine. The jailer seems to be the Mosaic law, to be under the jurisdiction of a conditional covenant is to put us in a place where we are slaves to sin. Now, we might not all do the same sin, but being placed under the law is like being placed under the oversight of a taskmaster, a disciplinarian. Uh, the Mosaic law, then, is like a jailer. We talked about covenants last week. We talked about this several different kinds. Two that are more, there's actually three, but two that are important for us. Um, there is what is called a suzerain vassal. A suzerain is a dominant king, and a vassal is a lesser king. And the reason, the way that works is if I am the suzerain and you are a collection of vassals, my kingdom is bigger than yours. And so you're surrounded by people and you're surrounded by kingdoms. And, and because you're surrounded by kingdoms, you're in jeopardy. I have all kinds of forces. So what you might do then is appeal to me. And they said, let's, okay, King Mike. Like the, like the idea. No, I'm just kidding. So, so um, we want to make a covenant with you. And so, okay, and so if we make this, it's a formal agreement. So what would happen is I'd say, okay, I'll tell you what. Okay, I will come and I will promise to protect you. If anybody, if anybody attacks you, I will come and deliver you. And so that's my commitment. Suzerain vassal covenants have commitments, things that I'll do. And then there are commandments. There's things that you do for the security of having me promise to do that, you will ha- you will have to fulfill commandments, which might be, give me this much wood, or give me this much gold, or give me this or that. And there would be commitments then, for me, commandments that you would have to honor, and then there would be consequences. If you don't do the commandments, there are curses. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't follow through, I'm going to do this, and it's not going to be nice. But if you do follow through, there's blessings. So there's commitments, commandments, consequences. That's a Susan Vassal covenant. And then there's another kind of divine grant. So this is me feeling generous. And I would say, okay, I'm going to form a covenant with you. You haven't come to me, but you know what? I, I feel kind of bad, and I understand that you are in a place that there's there's enemies that are encroaching. And so I'll tell you what I'll do. Just because I'm feeling benevolent, I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to protect you. Commitment. And then you say, I've heard about these before. Yeah, what's the commandment? No commandments. This is a divine grant. It's different than a suzerain vassal. You say, no, no commandments. Nothing you have to do. Okay, (laughs) but where's the small printing? Yeah. 
what about the consequences? I've seen the commercials. You know, if I do this, if I don't do that, and, you know, there's that little thing at the end of the commercial where there's all these promises, and then it goes, but of course, you know, and then there's all this, this. So, um, so then, but there's, no, there's no small print. That's a divine grant. And in the Bible, there are a number of covenants, but there are three main ones. So there is the covenant with Abraham. That's a divine grant. God says to Abraham, I choose you and I'm going to bless every nation on the earth through you. That's Abraham's covenant. Then, 430 years later, comes the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses from Mount Sinai. Where the Abrahamic covenant is a divine grant and it only has commitments, the Covenant with Moses is a different one. It's a suzerain vassal, and it has commitments on God's part, commandments, well, it's the Ten Commandments, and consequences, blessings and curses. That came 430 years later, and what Paul indicates, did this trump that one? So if this one's in place, does that mean the covenant with Abraham is out? No. No, this is temporary. And then there is the new covenant, which he says, I will put my law in your mind to write it on your heart. I will be your God, you will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness. Remember their sin no more. Did you hear any commandments in that one? You heard commitments, right? Any commandments? Any consequences? Any ifs? No. So, Abraham, Moses, New Covenant. Um, And we looked at that. Last, what they are believing then, having been included in the new covenant, they are being led to believe that the temporary covenant with Moses, they are still under the jurisdiction of it, and that they need to obey the commandments in order to be blessed. And if they disobey the commandments, they will be cursed. And that's what they're being led to believe, that they're still under the jurisdiction of that suzerain vassal covenant. And what Paul tries to help them to see is if you believe that that is the way it is, you will start to relate to God the way a slave relates to a master rather than the way a son or daughter relates to a father. To be under a conditional covenant, you don't have a permanent place in the family. Jesus comes to release slaves of sin to become sons and daughters of God with a permanent place in God's family. Uh, It's common to hear that the old covenant is still binding. I've heard it directly from individuals and heard it said in churches, Paul flatly disagrees. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In the context, the guardian is the old covenant. And it says, now the faith in Christ has come, we are not under a guardian. Christians are not under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. Paul is not making much ado about nothing. Again, does God want us to behave? Mm-hmm. And you know what the Bible would indicate? In order to act 
in a Christ-like manner? We need to think like sons and daughters of God rather than slaves of God. That's what the Bible will indicate. As we understand our relationship with God, we believe that we are sons and daughters with a permanent place rather than slaves with a temporary place. As that faith deepens, and it doesn't happen right away, as the roots of our faith go deeply into that, we will find ourselves acting like sons and daughters of God, Christ-like manner. That's what Paul understands. He knows that's what happened in Galatia. They were doing fine because they believed they were children. And then they were led to believe that they were slaves, and their behavior showed what they were believing. You know what the Bible would tell us? Misbelieving leads to misbehaving. Misbelieving what? Are you a slave of God or a son or daughter of God? Depending on what you believe, it will impact your behavior eventually. It won't start right now, but and that's what Paul wants to do. He wants to cultivate the proper belief. Jesus died so that we might come under the jurisdiction of the new covenant and become sons and daughters of God. Let's talk about being sons and daughters of God. It says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, This verse, it indicates that they had been baptized or immersed into Jesus. To be baptized means to be identified with. If we have a vat of water and a white shirt, white shirt, right? I immerse the white shirt into the purple dye. And it comes out purple. It comes out being identified with what is in the vat. White, identified with it, baptized into it, comes out purple. What happens when you are identified with Christ? When you come out. What happens when what's true of Jesus is true of you? We begin as slaves. What are you if you're identified with Jesus? Sons. That's what happens. We become sons and daughters of God. And you know what God wants us to do? Believe it. Believe it. Um, They had been baptized into Christ. They had put on Christ. And what he tells them as a result, what is true of Jesus becomes true of them. They were to relate to God as Jesus does. That's why Jesus came to earth. Jesus did not come to earth to be punished for our sins. He came to earth to allow slaves of sin to become sons of God. To do this, he had to change our relationship to the law. Look what it says in Colossians 3. Colossians 3.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. By the way, that describes the problem that's got to be solved. To sin is to be judged as a transgressor. How many have sinned? Get your hands up. 
We all sin. To be sin, to sin then, is to be a transgressor and to be judged as being dead in transgressions and sins. That's something that already applies to us. And then it's going to, well, what do we do if we're dead in transgressions and sins? Here's where this makes sense. Baptized and so you're saying, what do you mean? Let's read on. Let's read on. Look what it says. Um, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Again, our problem is not injured in trespasses and sins, not lame in trespasses and sins, dead in trespasses and sins. It's not a pending decision, foregone conclusion. Already applied. Dead in trespasses and sins. This is what the cross must deal with. Somebody who's dead in trespasses and sins, there's only one option if we are dead in trespasses and sins. And to become reformed isn't it. If I'm a dead body, it's hard to reform a dead body. Would you agree? Hard to reform somebody who's dead. They're already dead. So we don't need reformation. We need, we need resurrection. Right? We need resurrection. And so what we are told, this is the significance of the cross. God made us alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and which was hostile to us. That's why baptism is such a neat image, because we die with Christ and then as and we're identified with him. How do we know that God accepts individuals who believe in Jesus? That's a good question, isn't it? How do we know? Can we be sure? They couldn't find the body. Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what we are to take from that? What happened to Jesus in the Father's eyes has happened to us. As Jesus is risen out of death, what God wants us to understand, that's our visual cue that God accepts us and why he wants us to put our faith in Christ and in the new covenant. It says the resurrection again of Christ is a visual evidence that God has granted life to those who are to be judged to be dead in sin. Does that mean everyone on the planet goes to heaven? Does it? They could. What's necessary? Begins with an F. A. I. T. H, what's that? Faith. Faith in what? In Jesus. Yes, God and Jesus. And in his death and resurrection. We are dead in trespasses and sins. What happens to people who believe in Jesus who are dead in trespasses and sins? What happens to those people? How do you know? Because Jesus rose. Our faith is rooted in a historical event. 
They couldn't find the body. And when he says what happens to Jesus is going to happen to us. That's a basis of belief, isn't it? Sons and daughters of God. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. On this side of the cross, we are under the supervision of the Son of God. On the front side of the cross, we were under the supervision of the law of God. And now we're under the supervision, not of the tutor, but of the the son. So what? It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Here's where the Galatians got into trouble. Here's where they got into trouble. And so... Individuals came after Paul, and so they would have addressed these individuals in Galatians and say, okay, Galatians, God accepts you because you believe in Jesus, right? 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 Is that right? God will bless you even more if you obey the food and dietary laws that are in the Bible and that have been prescribed for thousands of years. Right? Right? And they... Okay. And they got confused. And that's what ended up happening. Um, They had a good yes. You know what they lacked? They didn't have a good no. They had a good yes. You're accepted because you believe in Christ? You'd be accepted even more if you follow the dietary laws. See, that's what they needed, a good no. No! Eh, off by a covenant. But that's confusing, isn't it? Well, it's not really confusing in our day, is it? Not really. We don't get confused about that. We don't get confused with, is the old covenant still in the new covenant? And Yeah, we're just as confused. In our time, the spiritual disciplines are different. It's no longer the signature disciplines of Judaism. However, when we attempt to use spiritual disciplines to approve, to improve on what God accomplished on the cross, when we use spiritual disciplines to try to improve on what Christ did on the cross, we make the same mistake they made. You cannot add to what Jesus did. can't. When you believe it, what ends up happening, you start to think like a son or daughter of God. And you know what flows from your life? Get this. Love. The load's off. As you believe it, over time, love begins to bloom. Um, We're contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Remember there's three different kinds? There's the Abrahamic Covenant and the Old Covenant with Moses and the New Covenant. Um, The Abrahamic Covenant and the New Covenant are what kinds of covenants? Do you remember the divine grants and what divine grants have? They have commitments. Do they have commandments? Consequences? Okay. These two are different, though. These two are different. They are divine grants, but this one, the Abrahamic covenant, 
was a little bit different. Um, in fact, what it indicated that um, the sign of circumcision was a sign that you were in. Not very gender inclusive, is it? Circumcision is the sign, not really gender inclusive. That's what ended up happening. So this is a divine grant, but it seems to be directed more at men. So if you're a Jewish male, you're in. If you're a Gentile woman, or there's not the same degree of security. Jesus fixed that. The new covenant fixes that. But it says in verse 28, Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Here is according to the promise. With respect to the new covenant, discrimination based on race, class, or gender has been eliminated. You're not more in because you're male or out because you're female or the opposite. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free. All those ways of distinguishing have been evaporated because we are all identified with Christ. What's true of him is true of us, whether you're man or woman. And you That's what Paul wants them to understand. In order to clarify the confusion, though, Paul uses an illustration from Roman family life. Look what he says in verse 1. I mean this, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, although he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In Roman law, a child was under the care of a tutor until age 14. The tutor was usually a slave and a disciplinarian, and the tutor made sure you got to school. Now, the tutor didn't teach you at school. It was the job of the tutor to get you to school. And if you didn't want to go to school, the tutor didn't say, oh, okay, that's okay. The tutor made sure you got to school. And some of us had to be forced to get to school. And the tutor, that's what the tutor did. And once you got to the school, then it was the job of the teacher. Um, the tutor was um, someone who didn't take any guff. And again, they were in charge of the child. The father puts the child under the authority of the tutor until age 14. And then... Oftentimes, between age 14 and age 25, they were under a curator who was not as much a disciplinarian, but still an authority. Finally, if you are the son of a father in the Roman Empire, the father supervises you indirectly through the tutor until age 14, then indirectly through the curator until age 25, and then at age 25, he has a ceremony where you become a fully identified with the family, and you become an heir. That's the way it works. And God placing, and this is Paul's point, 
God placing his children under the temporary care of law is like that Roman father placing his child under the temporary care of the tutor or the guardian. Is the tutor the same as the father? No, the tutor is not the same as the father. The father gives temporary authority to the tutor. And what Paul is describing, who is the tutor that God gave temporary authority? It is the law, a temporary tutor for a period of time. Did it need to exist? Does it still exist on this side of the cross? No, that's not. No, it was temporary. And I'll tell you what, when you got to be 25 and you got to relate to your father, unless he was really a not good guy, but the, these guys were really disciplinary, you probably wouldn't say, mm, I'll tell you what, Dad, so you're offering me a place in the family. I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to going under the tutor. You would never do that. You'd never do that. You know what's happening? That's what the Galatians are doing spiritually. Having come to this place of supposedly understanding the care of the Father, this going back under law, that's why Paul is trying to explain what happened. The supervision of the law is not the same supervision of God himself. I have a question then. See if it's how sharp you are. See if you're listening. Why is the Old Testament so harsh? Can we agree? The Old Testament is kind of harsh. If you don't agree with me, you haven't read it. Is it God was in a bad mood? In the Old Testament, God ran out of bullets. And so that's why on this side of the cross, he's nice. In the Old Testament, the law is in charge. Not God the Father. He gave it temporary authority, like a Roman father gave to the tutor and the custodian. On this side of the cross, God is directly involved in the supervision of his sons and daughters. The first half of the Bible reflects the supervision of the law. The second half reflects the supervision of the father. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is to be ascribed to the change from delegated supervision to direct supervision, the father's in charge. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem means to restore something to original ownership. Here's the deal. When that infant was born, he was, she was, the son or daughter of the Father, correct? They were temporarily given over to the authority of the tutor. When they were released, they were restored to original ownership. The Father had always been their Father. And that's what redeem means. It means to be released from an arrangement that feels harsh and disciplinary and restored to sonship. The only good thing about the new covenant, as opposed to the Abrahamic covenant, 
is that both men and women, Jews and Greeks, slave and free, are restored. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand. Um, And he says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir. God sends his spirit for this purpose. God doesn't send his spirit to convict us of sin. God does not send his spirit to give us emotional experiences. These might happen. Or subjective impression. God sends his spirit to teach you how to think as a son or daughter. It's called God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. I want you to imagine that I am the son of a very caring mother and father. I want you to imagine that you're not. You've been raised in a home that you weren't cared for. And therefore, when you come home, you feel the unease in your stomach. You're careful of your mother and father. You know what's going to happen if you get out of line. You're not just going to be disciplined. You're going to be treated very harshly, and you can never fully, you can never fully relax at home. My relationship with my father is very different. I go home and I relax. Now, would you agree, stepping into that home, we are going to have very different experiences. Their impression of home and my impression of home are very different impressions. And they're not going to be able to change very easily. I want you to imagine this. What would happen if I could take my mental representation of family and if I could put it into their mind? What would happen? We actually know when there is security and a son or daughter knows that they are loved, it breeds Self-esteem, self-control, mastery, and empathy. If I know I'm loved by my mother or father, and if it's a deeply held belief, I feel like I matter because my mother represents the world, and in my history, I in a bid for responses, she came. And she she came. I must be important. Self-esteem, self-control. She's going to be there. So when I have a need, I don't need to demand that I get to my mother's going to be there. Self-control. I can wait a little bit. Mastery. She's with me. And so, you know what that does? I don't have to watch my back. I don't have to have eyes in the back of my head. You know what that means? I can study things. I can learn about things and master things because I don't have to be looking over my shoulder. And empathy. You know what I, if I'm raised in that kind of home, I like relationships. Do you know what the spirit does on a spiritual level? 
That's what the Spirit does. It's like Jesus taking his mental representation of his Father and putting it in our head. We've grown up to believe all these things about God. Things about what he's going to do. And Jesus says, here, here, come here, come here. I died to change your relationship. This is what I want you to see when you see God. Now what do you see? It's kind of confusing. What Jesus would say, you stay with me. You stay with me. You remain in my word. I'm going to change the way you think about God. And that's going to change your life. I'm going to cause you to develop a yes and a no. And when it's not my father, it's going to be stranger anxiety. No, that's not him. You need to develop a no. You're going to hear things about God. You're going to have to say yes and no. It's not him. You don't have to say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. Jay-Z used to talk about listening to the radio and, and just screaming. You know, sometimes, no! And, sorry, Mark. Blue is Arizona. Okay. That's what it means to be influenced by the Spirit. It's not a charismatic second experience. Some individuals claim that, and I'm not blowing that up. I'm saying that the normal ministry of the Spirit is to help us think about the Father the way Jesus did. That's what he's supposed to do. He's a spirit. So, well, isn't that what it says? Look what it says in Romans. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons, and by whom we cry out the Father. The Spirit himself bears with our spirit, witness with our spirit, that we're children of God. That couldn't be any clearer, could it? It's describing what the Spirit does. Okay. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Um, God doesn't fix a problem that's not the problem. What is our problem spiritually? What's our problem spiritually? What's your problem spiritually? And how would it be solved? We relate to God as slaves to a master rather than sons and daughters to a father. That's our spiritual problem. The way you know a problem is by going to an expert. And the expert, when they identify the problem, helps you to know what went wrong. God is an expert in developing and cultivating spiritual life. And you know how he fixes our issue by taking the spirit of his son and placing it in our minds. That fixes the problem. He changes the way we relate to God. What do you do with this? You're saying, Mike, some of this makes sense, some of it doesn't. Um, we don't change the way we think about God overnight. It takes a long time. So if you're here, I keep coming back. But let me give you something practical. And then we're going to... In fact, come on up, and then I'm just going to say this while the worship team's coming up. When you are, when you deal with sin, we have a tendency to believe that sin means that God either hates us or doesn't like us anymore. But what the New Covenant says, I will forgive their unrighteousnesses and remember your sin no more. So here's what, we've done this before, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you four things. When you sin and you are confessing that to God, 
you say, God, you know, I did this, and geez, I don't, I feel lousy about the fact that I did it. But confession means to say the same thing as. So what God says about your sin and about you when you sin, here's what he says. I am still in you. I am still with you. Good is still ahead of you. Guaranteed. Why? That's the new covenant. God in you. God with you. Good ahead of you. Guaranteed. So how does that work? You do something, you cut somebody off. Or do something worse. God, I wish I hadn't done that. Thank you that you're in me. Your goods guarantee your your goods I have a question. I wonder if there's anybody here that served in the military? Anybody serve in the military? If you have, would you mind coming forward really quickly? I'm not going to ask you to do anything real embarrassing, I promise. Anybody else in the mix? Come on up. I'd like, I, I want to come on up, Lord. This is what I'd like you to just, will you just, would you just say your name? Uh, my name is Dale Jacobs. And the branch you uh, served? I served in the U.S. Army. Okay. And where you were deployed or where you served? I uh, never was employed. Spent most of my time in Fort Hood, Texas. Thanks, Dale. Uh, Lyle Coomer, I was 13 years in the uh, South Dakota Army National Guard as a okay. combat engineer. Uh, Raleigh Hansen, four years in the Navy and UDT SEAL. Let's pray for these guys. God, thanks for those who served and who put themselves in harm's way, put their own careers on hold in order to uh, provide protection and support for protection. And thank you for what we enjoy because of the service of men and women like these. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.